Hey, everyone. Welcome back to our monthly Wealth Wisdom podcast series. I'm your host, John Lawson of Asante Wealth Management and Sauna Family Office. Today, we have back by popular demand, Drummond Broder, Senior Vice President and Global Strategist of Signature Global Asset Management, who manage about $50 billion. What I and I think other people appreciate about Drummond is his ability to articulate his thoughts on a very complex world of economics and how it will affect us and our investments. Trevor, cue the music. Today's discussion will focus on an article Drummond wrote mid-January aptly titled, Break On Through the Other Side. Not only is this a classic Jim Morrison and Doors tune, but the title speaks to the question many investors have, what's next? So Drummond, coming to us from sunny Kelowna, and we actually yeah. touched on this last time when we were together on this show, you and your you wife did. love Kelowna. And although home is still Toronto, you took the plunge and you bought a place where your heart always has been. Yep. Yep. No, we were, uh, we were fortunate and uh, we were able to sort of uh, find a place here in the Okanagan and uh, work from home has allowed us to spend some more time out here. So that's, uh, that's where I am today in the Okanagan and uh, quite happy to be here. Fantastic. Well, let's get down to your thoughts. Uh, out of the gate this year, January 5th, Democrats took both Georgia seats in the U.S. Senate. What did that set the stage for when it comes to policy? And yep. why does it matter? That was exactly, that was a, um, a, a, a definite significant event uh, in terms of shaping what 2021 is looking like and uh, going to continue to look like. Uh, it's just not the most dominant one, which we'll come back to, which is sort of the with the the vaccine and the virus. Um, and as I said, probably said, uh, I think when we last spoke in August, we've been in a year. It's actually a, almost exactly a year now since this pandemic hit. Um, and uh, for the past year, we've been saying, if you want to understand the trajectory of markets and economies, you got to understand the trajectory of the vaccine virus and of the policy responses to it, both fiscal policy and monetary policy, because those have dramatically shaped where we've been and where we will continue to be so uh, as we go through 2021. So 2021 was always looking good, but when the, the, you saw the, uh, the Georgia seats meant that we got a unified government in Washington uh, as opposed to a split Senate. Uh, and it means that the Democrats uh, and the Biden administration have a lot more leeway, therefore, to push a uh, fiscal spending agenda. And so fiscal policy has been a really dominant uh, sort of theme in terms of uh, getting us through this pandemic, um, and it will continue to do so into 2021. So we're going to go in through 2021 with increasing doses of fiscal stimulus into an economy that was already going to be reopening as the vaccine spread through. And so if you look at last year from a fiscal policy perspective in the U.S., Canada is to a similar degree and other developed countries all do similar degree, different uh, uh, magnitudes. But in the U.S., you spent about $3 trillion last year in fiscal stimulus. Now, the U.S. is about a $20 trillion economy. So $3 trillion is 15% of GDP that they spent, you know, basically offsetting the impact of the virus. And a lot of that was basically straight transfers into, uh, uh, into households. So, you know, sort of 
direct checks. You know, they, they sign out checks for uh, direct checks to uh, to individuals as well as enhanced unemployment insurance, uh, etc. So, you know, several trillion dollars in transfers to household uh, household balance sheets uh, last year. Uh, the most recent one was about a nine hundred billion dollar package in December uh, to keep that fiscal stimulus supporting the economy because we're still in uh, a, a, a sort of quite a, a level quite significantly below where we were pre-COVID, but improving fast. And now with this administration uh, sort of getting a uh, unified um, control of uh, Congress, we've got another package going through the uh, Congress right now for another 1.9 trillion. Now that may get bounced around in the next week or so, um, but it means you're likely to get roughly $1.9 trillion of extra stimulus probably gets passed next week. It's passed the House, it's in the Senate. Um, We expect there would be more stimulus this year, uh, but in a divided house, it was going to be half that at best. So now we've got another $1.9 trillion. And in the fall, we expect there's going to be another package, fiscal package. It's going to be infrastructure focused. Um, and there's a lot of technical reasons why they get two shots at it this uh, year in terms of the way Congress works. Um, the first one is all about more stimulus to support you know, through the virus. Second one is a long-term infrastructure spending bill, where we expect the number they're going to try and push is somewhere between a two and four trillion dollar package. Uh, and it will be spread over multiple years. It will have some tax offsets to it. Um, but however you look at it, these are big numbers. And if you add just that 1.9, that's a total of five trillion dollars in the U.S. economy. That's 25 percent of GDP in fiscal support and spending. That's going to drive a tremendous uh, sort of amount of growth into the economy through 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 2021, and that's break on through to the other side uh, is very much a, you know looking at that dynamic. How do we get through uh, this virus, through this pandemic, and get out to the other side? And this fiscal stimulus is part of the driver that is going to uh, going to drive that economic growth going forward. Great, yeah, and that is that's a massive amount when you put it into in terms of uh, percentage of GDP, you get a sense for just how uh, how big of an impact and why there's so much money around. Uh, so uh, on on the other side, uh, one of the thoughts uh, that you had is we'll probably see a little bit of uh, um, tax increase from them too, but uh, uh, that will uh, be dwarfed by the amount of money that's being injected into the system is what I exactly. hear you saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So the, the Democrats would like to raise taxes, but the, the very narrow, uh, you know, it's a split sentence, 50-50, and the vice president gets the tie vote. So there's no agenda to go uh, very radical um, because you have to keep the most moderate, um, you know, Democrats on side um, or attract some of the more moderate Republicans. So it's a very, very fine balance. Um but it's, uh, which means as a tax increases will be balked at if you try to go too big on that side of it. So, uh, and it will probably also pare down the numbers that ultimately come through. Um, but it's, uh, as I say, the ability for the Democrats to control the agenda and put the proposals to the floor is what's different than had it been a split uh, Senate when this stuff would have never been able to even make it to the floor because you would have had the Republicans controlling the agenda. Um, so it's, as I say, it will be far more stimulus than we would have originally anticipated uh, uh, coming into 2021. Great. Okay. So that's policy. Uh, so now in economic terms, you talk about 2020 being the worst and 2021 being the best. And, and if uh, we put a subtitle to that, it could be uh, 2020 virus focus, 
2021 vaccine focus. It's exactly, it's the big V, whichever way you look at it. One V is uh, working against you, one is working for you. So the virus dominated our, you know, 2020, vaccines dominate 2021. Uh, and this is even more important than the policy response. This is the big drive of the breakthrough uh, to the other side. Um, you know, coincidentally, the Doors, uh, you know, the Doors music uh, break on through the other side was actually a drug anthem of the 1960s. Um, and Coincidentally, this is all about a drug as well or a vaccine. So there's, a, there's further parallels when you dig, dig a little further down into it. Um, and that's really what the story is going to be, is the vaccine rollout is going to spur the growth. As we reopen the economy, the pent-up demand is going to be quite spectacular that we see as we go through 2021. And this is going to happen. Now, we've maintained really since uh, from a year ago, um, the head of my healthcare team is uh, he's, he's a doctor, uh, Dr. Jeff Elliott. Uh, in the PhD scientific sense uh, in uh, biotechnology and molecular biology. And so understands viruses, vaccines. And from the beginning, what he was telling us a year ago was almost exactly what has played out. And that meant that all last year, we were very, I said, the virus is not going away anytime soon. It is going to be here for a long time and it's going to spread and there will be multiple waves. And a vaccine is really a 2021 story because it just takes time to develop them. So we've been on that uh, sort of storyline, if you will, uh, for a year now. And it meant that in you know, October, last fall, we started actually getting more constructive on the market outlook and re-engaging in risk and equity, taking up our equity exposures, because we said 2021, this is when the vaccine is going to start coming through. And when we saw the Pfizer announcements that came in November uh, for the, uh, the data, that was actually, that data, those positive vaccine development news came sooner than we expected by a month or two, and the efficacy was better. So that was unequivocally positive. Now, ironically, one of the reasons we got uh, the data quicker than we expected is the studies it takes to develop the vaccines, you need a massive number of cases. So the fact that the US let this thing run totally amok and out of control, bad for them, but it actually accelerated uh, both the mutations. You give you know, a couple million chances, virus, a virus will do what a virus does, and that is mutate. Uh, but it also accelerated the vaccine development process and pulled that forward. Um, so that's been positive for the rest of the world. So thank you, the U.S. Um, and so those are going to be rolled out. And they're now, they're like, even if we have logistical hiccups and problems, as we're certainly seeing in Canada, these are short-term temporary delays. They will be overcome. The vaccines are coming. They are going to continue to accelerate as more get approved. People will get vaccinated. And that will allow economies to reopen and continue to reopen. And that's what's going to drive that pent up demand. All those things we haven't been able to do for the past year, the ability to sort of to travel, to go to sporting events, to socialize, to see the grandchildren, you know, to hug the kids, um, everything that people want to do and have not been able to do, that is going to continue to sort of uh, re-engage as we go through the spring and the summer. And it's going to be like a snowball building. So it will continue to gain momentum as we go forward. And John, one thing that's really unique this time, compared to look at look at this reopening, why I think it's going to be such a strong year, is that in past years, past years, in past recessions, uh, normally when you get a recession, you have you know people lose their jobs, a lot of job losses, uh, GDP declines, etc. Um, and then when the economy, you know, when the recession, when you recover from the recession, it's kind of a long, slow process. You have to rebuild the damage. You have to rebuild your balance sheets. Uh, whether you're a household balance sheet, corporate balance sheet, bank balance sheet, the damage from the recession uh, means that things build slowly. Not the case this time. 
That fiscal transfers that we saw from last year meant that even as employment income plummeted in uh, the in uh, the U.S. and Canada elsewhere, actually total household income skyrocketed because of those fiscal transfers that we talked about. And so if you look at the latest data and it continues to go, this last package of 900 billion, we're just starting to see that sort of uh, uh, a hit in the numbers. And by various estimates in the US, today we have a savings rate close to 20% and close to $2 trillion of excess savings versus where you would have expected to be on trend levels. Okay, so an extra $2 trillion are sitting in household bank account savings uh, uh, levels, and that's there to spend. So they are actually in better financial shape than they were going in, in aggregate, which means as the ability to spend and open up goes, people will engage because they have, you know, as they, you know, they are able to spend and they, they have the money and the resources to engage in that. So this is why I think as you open up that spending, that, that, that powerful surge is going to be quite, uh, quite, uh, quite significant just because the amount of firepower, pent up firepower that is there that will enable people to do what they want. They don't need to rebuild their balance sheets uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and savings because they have been enhanced. And that leads, if you look at, I mean, we saw the Canadian numbers last night. Canada had the worst yeah, recession for a year last year, about minus 5% in the post-war period. Uh, similar to the U.S., that they're not, they're going to be close to minus 3, 3.5%. 3, 3 but the developed world is all down that 35 uh, to 7% range. A normal recession, John, takes you kind of on an annual basis. Maybe it's flat growth. It's two negative quarters, but the year may be flat. Maybe a minus half percent, minus one would be pretty severe. So these numbers are off the charts in severity, which means you have more room to bounce up and recover. Non-inflationary growth is big output gaps. There's still uh, about a million fewer jobs in Canada, 10 million in the U.S. So there's lots of room still for expansion uh, to, uh, to continue as things reopen, and it will happen fast. Once again, you open up the service economy, these, the, uh, you know, the baristas go back to work, hotels reopen. There's, these are very job intensive. So those jobs will come, uh, come back uh, uh, quite fast. But in the U.S., we're looking now, you're probably going to see a growth rate in the range of 7%. Wow. This is ballistic growth that we're seeing, and it's coming out of a, off a very low base, of course, but supported by both the, as I say, the reopening stimulus, and in some ways, you can think of the virus is the stimulus, but then we're throwing that fiscal stimulus we talked about on top. We're put adding gasoline to the fire to give this reopened economy even more momentum as we go through uh, uh, through the year through 2021. So this year, this recovery trade is you know, don't overthink it. It's a simple, strong cyclical recovery uh, that is, uh, is is going to see some of the best growth in 2021. And with this infrastructure package that we're expecting later in the year, that means it probably does continue to extend through 2022. So really the next 12 months are quite, uh, quite significant. Google, stop. <laughs> hey, Google, stop. Those little things listen, they, they pick, I don't know what they picked up on there, John, but started playing something in the background. Uh, that's outstanding, yeah. <laughs> So, hey, Drummond, you also uh, make the comments about uh, uh, friends at the Fed. Uh, and uh, in terms of inflation, um, their, their focus is, is not so much on keeping inflation low, but not to get up, uh, caught up in that inflationary whirlpool. Uh, and, and you uh, uh, coined a term uh, to avoid 
uh, uh, let, let's see if I can say this, uh, Japanification, Japanification. Uh, at yeah. all costs. So um, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, no, that's uh, friends at the Fed are a, a hugely, that's the other uh, leg of the policy stool. It's fiscal policy and it's monetary policy. And the Fed has structurally changed the way they're going to conduct monetary policy. And it was basically uh, articulated in a speech by Jay Powell in August of, uh, of, of last year at uh, Jackson Hole. Um, if there's any monetary policy wonks out there listening, uh, it's worth going back and listening to. Um, and if I'm the only one, then so be it. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was a dramatic shift because it was the culmination, that speech was the culmination of a year and a half review of how do you conduct monetary policy when interest rates are at the zero bound. Okay, and so it's a, a dramatic shift that's saying we can't run monetary policy as we have for the past 40 years because normally in a downturn, you cut interest rates by 400 basis points or 4%. Can't do that when you start at zero. Uh, so it was a really big structural rethink. Uh, and when you look into what he said and the implications of it, it's a bit mind-blowing because we've effectively shut the door on 40 years of inflation fighting uh, sort of approach at the Fed that was ushered in by Paul Volcker in the aftermath of the 1970s inflationary era, uh, which has dominated the, the how the Fed and central banks globally have run monetary policy. Uh, and we've shifted from that fighting inflation environment um, to a basically fighting deflation. And it goes down to the issue that inflation has been the concern of central banks for 40 years. Uh, but the reality is inflation was defeated in the 1980s. And it's sort of like fighting dragons. I mean, we're out there fighting these dragons, but you know what? No one has seen a dragon in 30 years. So what are we fighting against? And so you look at this deflationary risk, the Japanification era is, you know, when you look at Japan, they've been in a deflationary environment for 30 years. Okay, ever since and their, their bubble burst in the, uh, in the, um, the late 80s, early 90s, uh, and it's left the economy sort of in this stagnant deflationary backdrop for 30 years. And in the U.S.'s own experience, particularly post the financial crisis, we never got, you know, the U.S. The US, the US never got to its inflation targets. The Fed was never able to get the core PC up towards, it, it touched the 2% line twice in a decade before falling back again. So we're structurally under uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, missing our inflation targets. And it's turning out that um, we know how to fight inflation, but it's a lot harder to generate inflation. If it was easy, Japan would have done it 30 years ago. Um, and so that's that kind of shift is that we have to do, you know, it's all, all basically uh, um, hands on deck, not to fight inflation, it's to fight deflation. So in effect, we're trying to generate inflation. So from a, a, a mindset of saying, hey, how does the Fed control inflation to how do I get inflation? And it has huge implications uh, for how monetary policy is run. And there's two things. In the short term, they've adopted an average inflation uh, targeting regime, which says we're no longer going to start tightening monetary policy, raising interest rates uh, in anticipation of inflation because the you know, employment level is coming down. We're getting a full employment. We expect inflation to come, so we tighten. We're not doing that anymore. We are, A, we're going to let, allow the economy to run hot. We will only start tightening monetary policy when we get to uh, our inflation targets and when we expect our inflation targets to remain uh, at or above that 2% level into the future. So instead of tightening anticipation, we're going to wait till we see the whites of the eyes. Inflation is here. It's embedded. Then we will start to tighten. 
So for any set of economic circumstances, interest rates and monetary policy will stay significantly more supportive, lower interest rates than otherwise would have been the case. And the other thing, which I think is even more significant, we have to pay attention to going forward is listen to Jay Powell talking. He also went on to say that the way we've conducted monetary policy of tightening interest rates and monetary policy in anticipation of inflation. So when the Phillips curve is a relationship between inflation and unemployment. And so when unemployment started getting towards full employment, how they defined it, they would start to tighten policy. And he said, as a result of that sort of reaction function, that process, it meant that we started tightening monetary policy to slow the economy down whenever employment gains and wage gains started reaching the more vulnerable parts of the employment or the labor market. And as a result, every time, as I say, things started getting good for the most marginal parts of the employment market, we yanked the carpet out under, underneath them. And has, that has therefore been a significant contributor to the structural sort of income inequality we see in the US today. That's a mind-blowing statement for a policymaker to say, because it says that the way we've conducted policy focused on inflation for 40 years has contributed to inequality, which is increasingly becoming the number one priority of this administration. And so we're going to keep, we're not going to focus on trying to generate full employment. It's about maximum employment. It's about driving employment gains and ultimately hopefully wage gains into the marginal communities and only dealing with the inflationary consequences if they actually show up because so far they haven't shown up for 30 years. So monetary policy stays, you know, normally this stage of the economy, economic acceleration, this much fiscal stimulus, this sort of reacceleration we're seeing, they close it out. We would expect monetary policy to be tightening. Uh, the Fed would already be talking about it. And said today they're talking the totally the other way, saying it's not happening. And so interest rates, it means that interest rate structure, that zero interest rates at the short end are going to be with us for several years, certainly for the foreseeable future, uh, as we try to drive a much hotter economy. So we're going into an economic recovery, and I've got fiscal policy full on, monetary policy full on. We have not seen this in our careers, uh, and for the most case, in our lifetimes. This is radically different. And part of it increasingly is the Biden administration, I think, looking at what went wrong in 08 when uh, he and Obama were, uh, were in power, uh, and we're just not going to repeat those same mistakes of tightening fiscal policy after the crisis and just relying on monetary policy, because that led to a very disinflationary, uh, sort of a stagflationary uh, decade in the US. And so we've got to try something different. Yeah. And so really what you're saying is both feet are on the gas pedal. Uh, and to our uh, uh, earlier conversation, it is all about uh, uh, stimulus and uh, uh, pumping up the economy. So uh, yeah. that's, uh, that is going to be uh, good news um, in, in a lot of ways uh, and yeah. kind of leads us to our uh, uh, next section, which I wanted you to comment uh, because you've made this comment before. Uh, but uh, again, you restated the modern portfolio theory, rest in peace. Yeah. And this is bringing it back to John, what we do for a living, which is helping people manage uh, sort of for retirement and the savings and build savings for retirement. Um, and modern portfolio theory, uh, you know, was, it was effectively based on how do you build portfolios to generate a sustainable return, sufficient income over time, balance of bonds, uh, equities, et cetera, for, 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 for very different uh, objectives. Um, unfortunately, 
if you under, under, unpack the sort of uh, uh, basic assumptions underlying the theory of modern portfolio theory, in effect, it assumes that you can invest in the bond market, government bonds, and get a return of, say, 5%, a real return. So the real return you get on, uh, on, on a security is kind of the, uh, the nominal rate of interest, let's say it's 5%, less the level of inflation which has generally been roughly 2%, and that's their targeting. So for, for uh, you know, ease of the next decade, let's assume inflation does average 2%. Um, and so if you can get a 5% return on a government bond, you're getting a 3% real rate of return, which says, okay, I'm, my purchasing power of buying that 10-year government bond over 10 years, my, the value of my wealth is going to compound at 3% over and above the rate of inflation. And actually, John, if you and I can deliver that to our clients, a positive real rate of return of 3 or 4% over a decade or two decades, which is what a retirement framework looks like, we're going to have very happy clients. There was a small period in history in the 1980s and 90s when you could achieve that when we developed all this modern portfolio theory. Today, the real rate of return on the U.S. government bond is minus 80 basis points. It's basically almost 1%. So if you buy a government 10-year government bond today, which is yielding basically 1.4%, um, and it's, it, the real rate is based on inflation expectations, which is where the minus 0.8 comes from, but you're basically locking in a loss in purchasing power of roughly 1% a year for a decade. You can't live on that. Your savings are shrinking every year for a decade. Okay, so that so-called safe asset of government bonds, of GICs, of sitting in a bank account, Anything earning less than 2% means your purchasing power is shrinking over time. And if you actually look back in history, the last time we had a, a extended period of negative real interest rates was in the post-war period, inflating the debt from the war away, other parallels. Um, but if you just sat in government bonds over that time frame, you lost two-thirds of your purchasing power in a 30-year period. That's yeah. not what our clients are signing up for. So we have to say, where can we actually find alternatives to generate income and real rates of turn, returns in our portfolios. And it can't come anymore from the government bond market and from GICs, because they're not these low interest rates, which the Fed, is, you know, these central banks have said, we're committed to keeping them at these low levels, which means we're not likely to see positive real rates of return in the government fixed income GIC market for years to come. We have to ask where, therefore, can, can we achieve it? There's no, we've never had a more difficult time. And if there's if clients listening, this is the time to call John and say, hey, Drummond said, I can't achieve this in real time. What do I do? Because you know what? This is where you need to work uh, with an advisor who can help build you um, the right sort of portfolios and solutions that suit your needs, recognizing that there's no, there's no easy answers anymore. Um, that risk-free rate doesn't exist. And there are ways you can get it. There are solutions. Um, we use a lot of real assets. If I look at CPP, the uh, pension plan, they've been increasing the allocation of real, and when I say real assets, I mean real estate infrastructure, long duration assets with a cash flow associated to them that are generally paying four to 5% a year. So all already a better return. Um, in general, if you manage these, they're gonna be inflation linked. In other words, they will grow their returns in line with the general economy. So if it's growing at 2%, that four to 5% becomes a real rate of return, which is incredibly powerful in terms of portfolio construction because the government bonds give you no inflation protection. If inflation does increase, which is what the Fed is hell-bent on making sure it does. We, we'll see if they can do it. Uh, you have no protection in traditional gov you know, sort of government bonds. So real assets also build some inflation protection into that. And the price you're going to pay in terms of achieving that sort of yield that is multiples higher 
in terms of the uh, the, uh, the the um, the income yield and the growth is it's going to be more volatile. It'll bounce around day to day. But who cares if it bounces around day to day? What matters is where do you end up five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And compounding at 5%, 6% a year over a decade or two decades is a materially different outcome for clients than compounding at one or two. And remember, compounding at two is an effective zero return uh, over that time frame. So these are the discussions that we have to have. And this is that modern portfolio theory, rest in pieces. We have to start rethinking how we build portfolios, how we manage and engage risk as opposed to avoid risk, which is what modern portfolio theory generally builds construction to say, we have a risk-free asset that gives me five, uh, so I have a safe harbor. Well, when there's no safe harbor, it's like, how do I actually build the ship to be able to manage the short-term volume, which really doesn't matter yeah. for yeah. short-term for clients. So turn off BNN, turn off, like the stop this, you know, 24 seven watching markets portfolios because it doesn't matter to your long-term and your retirement savings. Build the proper portfolio. And, and as I say, that's where speaking with, with, uh, with advisors is going to help understand your needs, your tolerances, um, there are solutions, but it has to be done differently than it has been for the past decade because the world has changed uh, in terms of, uh, of the option set that we're facing. Yeah, and it's uh, it's something that we talk to uh, clients about a lot, Drummond, and the, uh, a couple things that we often refer to is we don't manage a portfolio the same we did, uh, way we did 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago. We are consistently looking forward. Yes, we look behind uh, in the rearview mirror to see how did we do, what did we do right, what did we do wrong. But where, the, where we make the difference is you have to look forward and you, you have to say, how are we going to achieve those rates going forward? So that's, that's one piece. Um, and the, the second piece is exactly what you refer to uh, with people having a short-term bias when it comes to their investments. Uh, what do you hear people talking about? You hear that they were they got into Bitcoin and uh, it shot up. They got into Tesla, it shot up. Uh, Google, uh, um, Zoom, whatever it is, it's focused. And I get it. People want to celebrate the, uh, the wins. But that short-term focus can be so detrimental to the long-term. And so when we do build these portfolios, the first question we always ask when somebody says, John or Josh, we've got money to invest, uh, how should we invest it? First question always is, what's the purpose of those dollars? Yes. Because if we don't understand the purpose, then we can't invest those dollars because if if that is and, and the pushback I off, uh, often get is well we just want to get a good return, great. But what's the purpose? Yeah. Getting a good return is not the purpose. And what we're trying to get down to is this long term money or is this something that you need in within a year because you're going to buy a piece of property? Uh, because if we take those dollars and invest them in a long-term mandate and you yep. need that money in a year, we're not investing, we're gambling. Yeah. Because yep. markets can, uh, markets are emotional. They have these uh, fits and spurts and yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so 
and and nobody controls that and uh so it's so important to make sure that we uh we we suit the investment to what the purpose of the dollars are um and so very very well said and i think that's one of the great partnership issues is is myself our team and we have a you know 50 plus person team doing this um we can manage those dollars for you but we can't understand what your clients needs are and so that, that notion of where and how they should be invested is where working with an advisor, that partnership of understanding an individual client's risks and how to build the portfolios, and then partnering with people who can actually manage those on an effective basis, um, because markets are moving all the time. Um, and as I said, that's why we have a 50-person team globally. We cover all asset classes, all geographies in the world, because you have to. You can't just look at one market in isolation, because what happens in any one market impacts every other market around the globe. And so it is a 24-7. It is an uh, incredibly complex uh, world out there. And uh, that's where you need uh, a strong team yeah. to be able to deliver on it. And uh, as I say, that's where teams and partnerships um, are what are going to help people navigate to the other side and achieve the goals, whatever the goals happen to be. Um, and so, so let's let's uh, let's touch on that a little bit. You, you alluded to it, but... Um, you, you have many uh, different uh, components in which you can uh, pull. You have all the different tools in there and you, uh, you pull it out to put a, a, a portfolios together. But um, looking forward, what risks do you see out there? there and that's uh, exactly, there's, a, there's always risks out there. And as I said, this is one of the toughest investment environments, which implicitly assumes, yeah, there's a, there are a lot of risks out there. Um, I think obviously in the very short term, uh, where we're sitting today as we look at 2021, um, you know, the big one is, is there a risk of that you get another endogenous event or a, a, a COVID failure, as we call it? And they'll talk about all these variants, et cetera. These are really, really small likelihoods that these become problems. Okay, the variant, the virus is always, you always get new variants coming through, et cetera. The vaccines have all shown to be 100% effective against preventing death and severe illness, even if their efficacy levels are down. So there's a lot of misinformation on the viruses. Um, but uh, as I say, they always mutate. We knew they mutate. Most of the vaccines are effective in preventing severe illness. So we think that's a really small probability, um, but it's not minuscule. Then the other short-term issue right now is how much of this is priced in? Markets have had a tremendous move. Um, and so some of this absolutely has been priced in. We do think the strong economy means that earnings are going to be much stronger and will drive, you know, the market will kind of grind from here as it grows into, earnings grow into the, the, the rally that we've seen already. Um, so yeah, it looks expensive, but the earnings growth is, it's that time of the cycle where you're going to grind into that. So we think that is uh, the setup that we have uh, uh, for today, but it's going to be bumpier and we'll have some pullbacks uh, and bumps uh, 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 along the way. Uh, then short term, what we start looking at as we go forward is, um, you know, what, what you know, the big risk is if inflation really does start to come back mm-hmm. and if interest rates really do start having to pick up. Um, and, you know, in the near term, a rising, generally rising inflation, inflation expectation, interest rates rising slowly in anticipation of better economic growth overall. That's a great setup uh, for, for risk assets because you're, you're basically seeing rates and inflation rising because the economy is getting better. What's not so good is if you start getting that rise of inflation is becoming disproportionate uh, to the growth rate, more of that stagflationary, still low growth, rising inflation, rising interest rates. That is going to be a time when you're going to lose money in bonds, you're going to lose money in equities, correlations, 
shift. There will be no safe harbors. So that real uh, 1970s style inflation, still think that's a low probability, but as you pour more and more stimulus on it, it starts to become uh, problematic. So that's one, uh, uh, another issue. And then it goes down to what do we see post the bounce? I think the economic, this is, was one of the easiest years for me as a forecaster from an economic perspective to look at what was coming, just because there's so many drivers all pushing in the same direction. Usually they're offsetting each other. But what happens in 2022, 2023, when this sort of rebounce fades, when this initial huge amounts of stimulus start to fade? Um, are we going to be in a world where, uh, you know, some people are looking at the roaring 20s, the last pandemic, it came out, we were, the stimulus is going to work, this pent-up demand is going to drive the economies to a higher growth uh, trajectory, higher growth potential, which will allow us to absorb the debt that's been built up, pay that down, uh, earnings will grow, it's going to be a time of, you know, massive, I mean, we're looking at huge shifts in technology, shifting how different businesses work, creating new opportunities in, in terms of, uh, as I say, technology, sustainable energy. There's lots of growth areas. This next decade is going to be absolutely uh, a fascinating decade because everything is going to change. It's one of those decades they do only come around every every century or so. Uh, so could that be from a growth in markets thing, a, uh, a, a roaring 20s, very positive type of backdrop? Possible. Uh, or could we see another sort of... Um, uh, you know, sort of a disinflationary hangover as we go forward, uh, a lost decade again, as Japan's been in for 30 years, where those three Ds, that sort of the debt levels, the demographics, which are still haven't changed, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that deflation continues to shift us back to the subpar growth uh, potential. And so like the last decade, we end up reverting to a slower stagnant growth environment with a much bigger debt overhang. Okay, interest rates are still low, but that in income inequalities then continue to accelerate and that excel, you know, continue to put the social strains that we're seeing on play in the US that continues to sort of bubble and tear apart uh, sort of a, loss, a lot of our social constructs. So there's some real risks in terms of our broad uh, sort of social structures or social contracts um, that, that we have with governments, you know, both domestically in, in each country and also geopolitically how we manage those, uh, those relationships, the rise of China, et cetera. So I wrote a piece about a, uh, in mid-2019 about the geopolitical recession, winter coming now, and it was talking, you know, you, you can look at the, the Trump management of geopolitical issues uh, and, uh, and um, foreign policy, and it, it was an absolute unmitigated disaster. There's really no way to look at that because it was con uh, other way to look at that because there was no rhyme or reason to it. Um, uh, but it does reflect a lot of the challenges that were already there and have been there for some time and continue to, uh, to grow. And so even under the Biden administration, we're going to actually have professionals back in the room to manage the challenges. Um, but the challenges are very, very real. The technological challenge uh, from China, the economic threat, political threat, military threat, technology side for threat from China is all there. And we've been trying to pivot to deal with these for, the, for a decade now. Um, and uh, so how we manage the geopolitical backdrop is, is going to be incredibly important. So all of these are huge challenges that we're going to have to deal with uh, in the coming decade. And they could have adverse headwinds in terms of economic growth rates uh, and hence market potential. So as I say, it's, it, it could be a roaring 20s. I could paint some opportunistic scenarios, uh, but let's be very cognizant of the challenges that we face uh, both, uh, you know, domestically here in North America and globally, and the debt overhang, 
and demographics that could leave us in this kind of slow growth, uh, uh, disinflationary uh, bind for longer. So it's, it's um, nothing's written in stone, John, on these. Yeah. Uh, it will depend a lot on policy choices that do get taken. We're going to be in an area where policy is going to matter more than ever. Um, and uh, we're just going to have to stay, you know, stay cognizant of, of, of these developments and changes as they, as they progress. Great. Well, thanks, Drummond. Uh, uh, great summation and wrap up of, uh, uh, of the overall situation and what you see beyond the bounce. Um, Drummond, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you and getting your insights on the world of economics and investments. Thank you for taking the time to be with us uh, again. And Kara and I are looking forward to seeing you and Kathy at the lake sometime uh, and actually being able to socialize when it can be done safely. John, looking forward to having a drink uh, drink with you uh, sometime soon at the lake. The lake is perfectly common still right now as I look out over it. So uh, thank sure, you very much. It uh, it's, it's an honor to, to be invited to speak with you. So I do appreciate it. Thanks again, Drummond. Take care, John. Wow, there's a lot of information packed in that brain of his. Drummond, again, has that way of articulating incredibly complex uh, discussion when it comes to economics and investments and putting it into um, a more succinct format. So always appreciate uh, Drummond coming on the show uh, and we'll continue to have him as he is definitely an expert and the top of his game uh, in his field. So looking forward to our next podcast. It's going to be Steve Saretsky. He's a real estate expert and this is driven by uh, the number of questions that we get regarding real estate. So why not bring in an expert? Uh, looking forward to that for next month's uh, uh, Wealth Wisdom podcast. And in the end, our goal is to educate and engage our audience. If you have other topics you'd like us to dive deeper into, please let us know. As well, if I could ask you all to post a review. I'm no techie, but I'm told this really helps spread the word. So if you could do it, that would be much appreciated. And lastly, for those who don't know the origin of the name Sana Family Office, it stems from the word Asante. In Swahili, it means thank you. However, the most commonly spoken phrase in Swahili regarding Asante is Asante Sana, which means thank you very much. This name represents to us the gratitude towards all of the families and business owners who have chosen our team as their trusted advisory council. So until next time, Asante Sana. Hi, I'm Trevor Beggs from Sana Family Office, and thanks for listening to John Lawson and the Wealth Wisdom Podcast. Here are the necessary disclosures. Asante Capital Management is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. This material is provided for general information and is subject to change without notice. Every effort has been made to compile this material from reliable sources However, no warranty can be made as to its accuracy or completeness. Before acting on any of the above, please make sure to see a professional advisor for individual financial advice based on your personal circumstances. The opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of Asante Capital Management. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Wealth Wisdom Podcast.